Hello, everyone. This is Wesley Campbell, and we are again in our Conversions podcast. I have with me one of the most amazing individuals, and I met this individual, Liana Cinquanta, an Italian-American, a few years ago, and she show, so shocked me. I mean, when I heard her story, all I wanted to do was find out, who are you? Where did you come from? Peter Wagner calls her one of the foremost strategists in world missions, and she has gone to India over many years and has resulted in seeing hundreds of thousands of people brought into the kingdom of God through her tenacious leadership. So we're going to jump right into this. And go ahead, Leanna, introduce yourself. And where did you come from? <clears throat> you know, what year were you born? What, what, what happened in your life? Thank you, Wesley. It is really an honor to be with you today. Um, I was born in Wisconsin in the year 1970. I'm an only child of two wonderful parents. And I was homeschooled from a very early age because my folks really didn't want me to get into the bad stuff going on in the school system. But in the 70s, it was not legal to teach your own kid at home in all states. And so we moved a lot, um, moving around to find the places in the U.S. where it was legal to homeschool. Now, were you kind of one of those under-the-radar families, off the grid? Your father was a little bit, maybe a bit paranoid? Yep, uh-huh. In fact, we were kind of running from the law a couple times. They uh, <coughs> actually threatened my parents. Uh, they actually threatened to put my parents in jail for keeping me out of school. Really? And my now, mom... what was their motivation for this? It was all moral values. Um, my mom was one of the forerunners um, fighting for the rights of parents to teach their children at home. Uh, she herself a college dropout simply because of uh, the she couldn't just flow with the system they were trying to indoctrinate her into. She chose to write a thesis that was promoting um, parents to be able to teach their children at home. And of course, we know today that, that we have freedom now. Home, parents have freedom to homeschool their kids. So I'm very thankful to my mom and my parents for now, taking there, a stand for righteousness. Was this religiously motivated, do you think? It was not at all religiously motivated, in fact. Um, I had never been to church in my entire life up to age 14. I actually, one, two times I had been in church one wedding, one funeral. <laughs> but I was completely unchurched. I was your, um, your, your basic unchurched American who had no idea about the gospel message. So why, um, you know, they're Catholic. Why did you never go to church? Well, my dad's, uh, being from an uh, Italian background, uh, my dad's parents were Catholic, but my dad was very bitter toward the church because he had seen uh, hypocrisy and he felt like um, really when you asked my dad about what he thought about church, the pastor just wants your money and the Bible was written by men and don't even go there. And so we didn't. We never went to church. We had a Bible in the house. We never read the Bible. And I literally did not know hardly. I knew Jesus is the Christian God, and I'm an, I'm an American, so I guess I'm a Christian. And that was my philosophy of faith. So socially, you were just, this is, we're not Muslim, we're Christian. Yeah. So did you think about God growing up? Not really, for until I was a teenager. Um, and, you know... I was aware that there's churches out there and there's, yeah, I'm supposedly a Christian, but I really never thought about God beyond this. I thought, well, 
I'm supposed to believe, I suppose, suppose I'm supposed to believe in God, but I don't see God. I don't hear God. I can't feel God. Um, my dad says the Bible isn't, you don't read the Bible because that was just written by man. And well, I sure don't want to go in the church because the pastor just wants my money. And so I don't believe in God. And I kind of made the decision around the age 14, 15, I kind of decided I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. Okay. So now you were quite uh, an out there only child, pre-teenager, you were like on the edge. You once told me like your dad taught you to fly biplanes or airplanes or tell me about, what was your yeah. childhood like? I had an amazing childhood and I'm so thankful for that. Um, my dad kind of worshipped me, <laughs> which actually is dysfunctional. Um, but he did, he was an amazing aeronautical genius. Uh, he had taught himself to fly a plane back in the 30s and uh, had become an, uh, a, quite an expert pilot. Uh, he was one of five elite bomber pilots in the Second World War um, doing over-the-shoulder bombing over Japan. He what does was, that mean? Throw a bomb over your shoulder? You, you, pull, you, you fly over the enemy, you find where you need to drop your bomb, and, and, but you're flying so low that they're going to shoot you down. But right before they shoot you down, you pull the airplane straight up and you drop the bomb. You, you actually flip the airplane over backwards. That's why it's called over the shoulder. You flip over backwards, and so as you're pulling up, they can't, they can't shoot you at that point. Right then, you drop the bomb, and you get out of there. Wow. So everybody else in his squadron was shot down. Was shot down. He was also shot down. The others were killed. He survived. So he was shot and crashed. Yes. He would never tell the story. He, it was very traumatic for him. Um, and Where did that happen? We never, it was during World War II, before I knew my dad. This was, of course, obviously, <coughs> before I was born. Where did that happen? Uh, Japan. All we know is he was, uh, he was deployed to Japan. So you shouldn't even be here. That's right. You're it's a, miracle a miracle that you're alive. How, did he have many close calls? He would never talk. All I know, when I was a little kid, he had a patch in his, in his head from a, an old war wound that my mom would tend to that patch. Um, he might have had a plate in, in his in his skull. We don't know. So wow. Yeah. Okay, so he uh, now did he try to get you to fly? And then, so at age nine, um, he was in the process of building a man-powered flapping wing. His dream was to build an airplane that didn't need an engine that could fly like a bird. It had been his dream his whole life long, and and we didn't have hardly any money. We're living on five hundred dollars a month. And yet my parents were able to figure out how I could have my dream of horses. At the same time, my dad is building this man-powered flapping wing aircraft. We are living in a 12-foot camper trailer parked for free on the back of an air airport where he's teaching flying. Um, and that was the time he had access to these airplanes. And he would take me up in the morning. I was uh, nine years old. And we would go up flying together in uh, Piper Cub, Cetabria, those type of small planes, two-seater small planes. And he would teach me to fly, and I got to where I could take the plane off, fly it, and land it all by myself. So he's sitting with you, mm -hmm. but you went down the runway, took off, flew, and landed by yourself. Yes. You're amazing. <laughs> Okay, so your dream of horses. You said you had a dream of horses. What's that? Well, my mom got me involved in horses when I was very small, four or five years old, because she had loved horses as a young person. So I, I was excelling in equestrian and learning to ride 
um, at the same during this same time. And so I was learning to ride during this same time. Um, and but as this progressed, my horse, I was my dad thought I was going to go into airplanes. My mom thought I was going to go into horses. But my horse desire and my passion for the equestrian pursuits was growing. And I was becoming more and more active in the equestrian and horse showing as I went into college. So uh, did you start to, was this a, a pastime or was this a competition? What did you do? I believed I would be in the Olympic Games. I was, that was my goal with my equestrian pursuit. Was Doing what? Horses, um, what? riding. The, there's there's several equestrian events in the Olympics, and I was thinking I was going into jumping. That was that was what I really liked. But then at my, things shifted later, and I started. I went into a different discipline called dressage. Called what? Dressage. It's basically ballet with a horse. You teach the horse to dance. Wow. So how good were you? Got up to the middle level difficulty, and I was the this. This is all after I came to know Christ. So we're going to back up and yeah. go to my my salvation story. Um, but you got how good in this? So I became the third, the the middle level of the difficulty champion in a five state region, Minneapolis, Chicago area. You were the what? The, the middle. The, the champion at the middle level difficulty. You were the champion. Mm-hmm. Five states. Yep. So you're obviously an achiever. Yes. Okay. Now, back to your teen years. So I heard you went to like a, someone invited you to a youth group. Mm-hmm. And so around age fourteen, coming into age fifteen, um, my there was a family that had always been a friend to my dad. My dad had taught his sons to fly planes. His sons had tried to get educated through the typical flight schools and they actually kept on crashing the airplane. <laughs> oh, and so so um, they they wanted somebody to teach them to fly that knew how to fly an airplane. So they came to my dad and he taught his sons to fly and they became fast friends. And this gentleman was a very strong Christian. And so as the years progressed, he persuaded my parents who we were always living on in a 12 foot trailer or some kind of a shack that we would put together while we built our own house. And my dad really never had a place to work on his airplane dreams. And this gentleman had built his own hangar uh, for the planes after my dad had taught his sons to fly. He invited my parents, hey, why don't you come, and this was in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, he said, why don't you come and live in the apartment I've built in the back of my uh, aircraft hangar, teach my sons to fly even better, and you can just live there for free, and we'll, we'll, be, we'll be good friends. Um, and so we thought, okay, this is great. My dad's finally going to have a place to build airplanes. And uh, so we took him up on that um, in the year 1986. Wow. And we went and lived. So during that time, he invited us to come to his church. And my dad wouldn't set foot in a church, even his friend's church. He would not go close to a church. But mom, my mom was seeking the Lord. She had actually prayed for many years to know um, she'd been a Methodist background and had had, and I never knew this till later, she had had a call in her life as a child to go to India as a missionary. No. And the, but she went to had gone to her to the people in her church at that time, and they said, "Well, you're a single woman. You know, how can you do this? You need education. You need this. You need support." And she was discouraged from pursuing that, and she went off 
uh, to her worldly ways and forgot about God. So this, she she was seeking God again. And so my mom started going to church. I didn't want nothing to do with church because my dad has already basically indoctrinated me against right. you know, anything religious. But my mom made me go with her to church. And so my mom's be in church and I'm in the youth group. Well, I quickly made some friends in the youth group with the, the nastiest kids in there. <laughs> and we decided to have some fun. And so I would be the one that was instigating the trouble in the youth group. I'd be shouting out when the youth pastor's trying to teach. I'd bring spit wads to class and we'd shoot spit wads and just terrorize this poor youth pastor. So you were just like... You love to just cause consternation. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was always looking for mischief. And were you, did you hang, did you relate better to guys or girls? Guys. <laughs> so you were like the tomboy. I was totally tomboy and didn't really, I mean, in the sense of relating to guys, it wasn't like a boy-girl friendship. It was just friendship. Yeah. It was just fun. We just wanted to have fun. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and so, but this youth pastor... After I would cause all this ruckus in the class and instigate everybody to disobey and shoot spit wads, and, and I wanted to get kicked out because I thought that's going to get everybody to look at me. Then they're going to think Leanna's cool. And every time after that youth meeting, he would come up to me and he'd put his arm around me. He'd say, Leanna, I'm praying for you. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's not the reaction he's supposed to have. He's supposed to be angry with me. Uh, but see, and you were just fourteen. I was fourteen, coming into fifteen How at that time. How many pounds did you weigh? Oh, probably ninety-five. How, and like now, you're under a hundred. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah. you're just this tiny little person. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And um, but that allowed the spirit of God to start working on me, and I started to say, "Wait a minute, there's something different about these Christians. He that's not that's not a normal kind of love that he's showing me." And so I started to think, you know, is there something different here? But I still hardened my heart. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't, there was no way that just that was going to convince me to accept God. I mean, okay, so he's being nice to me, cool. God started doing things in my life, small miracles. But every time he did something, I would deny it again. Really? I would harden my heart again. And you weren't even asking? I wasn't asking really at this. I mean, I was kind of starting to say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. You know, there's a there's a scripture in the Bible where somebody said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right. And I began to, opening my heart just a crack, mm -hmm. very small crack. And so, and so that is when I started to get these little miracles. Well, do you want me to tell the ski hill incident? I'm not sure about that one. Okay. I don't know that one. Uh, you don't know that one. You haven't read my book yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do we have, we have time? I'll, I'll tell it. Um, okay. Short version of the, the small things every time I would deny. And then the something happened that really should have convinced me. Now, if you listen to this podcast and you say, yeah, that's me. I feel like I've hardened my heart against God so many times. God, surely God doesn't even care about me. Or I have sinned so deeply and I have done some horrible things. God surely doesn't want me in my in his kingdom. If that's you, the, this, this testimony is for you. Because I kept on hardening my heart. 
And I, you know, I even told you yet, I had a potty mouth, I had a potty brain. I mean, if I wasn't doing sin, I was thinking sin. And I was so full of darkness. Even though I'd had this good upbringing, I'd had this good family, I'd had all this great opportunities, I had everything I wanted. But inside of me, there was so much darkness, there was so much anger, there was bitterness. I had no reason to be bitter. I had no reason to be angry. But see, it was just... It was the the, the, the the sin in me. Mm-hmm. And God, yet, despite all that, God loved me. And God loves you. And here's how I know that God loves each one of us so deeply that he won't give up on us, even mm-hmm. when we're hardening our heart against him. So the next thing is I was starting to learn to ski. Again, I'm... I'm, I'm um, I've been, been 14, 15, because my birthday's around December, so it was winter time of that year. I'm learning to ski. I never skied in my life, and there we are. We're in this well, the ski hill two miles down the road. Um, and um, and so I'm going skiing every, every few days, and I started to think I was an expert. And so I thought, hey, I'm going to go up to the really steep mountains. And there was this one mountain that you couldn't find. It was it was marked on the map, but but I'd ski up there and I could never find it. And it was it was supposed to be there, and I couldn't see where it was. I, I said, if I ever find that ski run, I'm going down it. I don't care how steep it is. So I made this dare for myself. Right. And one day I, I I left the ski poles at home. I didn't even bring the ski poles, and I'm up there, and I had cranked my bindings down so tight. Okay. There was no way to get those things loose without a ski pole to pry them off. Right. It was old-fashioned binding. I didn't think anything about that. I'm headed up to the, to the steep hills and full of pride, full of arrogance. Or did you take a, a, a run, like a, a, a gondola? Or? You, take, you take a lift up okay. partway and then you ski, ski across. There, okay. was a, there was a cross-country area to get to the, to the Black Diamonds. Okay. So it was this, this special run that I could never find is right in the middle of that very wilderness area. Nobody's there. Just a few people back and forth and then... Okay. There's no people there. And so I, I found that place again, and I, 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 this time I walked up a little hill, and I found that ski hill that was marked that I never could find before. And I'm like, oh, good, I finally found it. Now I'm going to go down it. Well, guess what? That ski run hadn't been used for years. There was no lift at the bottom. It was all grown up with brush. And I had never powder skied in my life. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. But I launched off over the edge of that thing, just heading straight down. My skis sunk six inches in that powder, and I'm going straight down this this cliff. And I freak out. I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to kill myself. So about halfway down, I purposely wiped out because I was yep. picking up speed, and I couldn't stop. So I purposely wiped out. Um, and, and I crawl out of the snow, and I'm just the abominable snowman. I'm, I'm snow down my neck, snow up everywhere. And then I realized I'm in trouble because I'm halfway down this mountain. I tried to sidestep up. Yeah. I couldn't go up. Down, there was nothing there but jungle. I mean, the woods, there was nothing there. I had to get back up that hill. Now it's, it's about two degrees freezing. I mean, extremely yeah. cold late afternoon the sun is going down i am starting to freeze because i'm full of snow just caked all through my clothing and i've and i tried to get i pulled on those bindings and i tried to pry with a piece of wood piece of wood just broke and those bindings would not release and nobody knew i was back there this is the days before cell phones i was in trouble and for the first time in my life i prayed 
Wow. I had never prayed in my life. And I said, God, if you're there, I need you. I need help. I need help. Instantly, the moment I made that prayer, all of a sudden, I felt just the sun got so warm, and I just felt the hot oil going as like warm, going from my head all the way down, down, down. And when that warmth reached my feet, my hand involuntarily reached for the ski binding. Now, I had been struggling and struggling to open that ski binding for, for a long time. My hand reached to it, touched it, it fell off. The ski really? fell off. My other hand, before my brain could engage, my other hand involuntarily reached, touched the other ski binding, the ski fell off. And I'm sitting there going, whoa, what just happened? Huh. I'm, I'm, I'm dazed. And okay, uh, and okay, I picked up my skis, I walked up the hill, put my skis back on, and I'm in this, I'm kind of, whoa, 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 what happened? I forget about going up skiing. I went back to the lodge, and I actually walked up the hill because I had taken my skis in off. Deep snow. Now it's easy. Uh, you can without skis on. I could yeah. do that. See, with the skis on, there was no way I could have walked up the hill. But now wow. I got my skis off. I can walk up the hill in my boots. Right. I went back to the lodge. My mind is just 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 numb. I'm going. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Some there's got to be an explanation. There's, there's got to be a rational explanation. And I said, I'm going to sit down here at the ski lodge, people, ski poles all around me. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to take those skis off with my hands. Reach down? Absolutely not. You couldn't do it? No way. It was like pulling on steel to try to open that binding. God had miraculously touched those bindings up on that mountain and opened those things up. Were these the old cable bindings? These are the old, where you had to stick a, a ski pole in yeah. and pry. Okay. That's the kind, old-fashioned is what I had. That you, Nowadays, it's that's not an <clears throat> issue anymore. But Total miracle. Total miracle. Guess what? I hardened my heart. Really? I hardened my heart. I did not believe from that miracle. I said, I don't know what, how I said... I don't know what, but it was chance. That wasn't God. I and hardened you just my put heart. It you. I put it behind me. I went on with my life. Okay, so how long after that did the significant okay. appearance take place? Within probably within a month or two. Really? That close? March 28, 1986. Maybe a couple months. Okay. Because it was March, it was that same winter. March 28, 1986 was the time, the, the, the night when. God came upon me in a way that I said, God is God. Okay. So are you at that same guy's apartment? Same place. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what happened is I went to bed that night just like any other night and <coughs> went to sleep. Must have been about five o'clock in the morning. I woke up and I'm laying there. I'm thinking, oh, shucks five o'clock in the morning how am I gonna get back to sleep this is a drag you know teenagers bad attitude kind of thing I'm laying there in my bed and all of a sudden an audible voice spoke to me from across the room okay now you hear this with your audible ears. voice I am wide awake or and I hear an audible voice and the voice said there's someone in the guest bed now in my room, which was not very large, there was another bed with a little walkway between my bed and that bed. And there was a window above that bed. 
Um, and once in a while, I would have friends stay overnight. Um, and this night, I had no friends over. Again, I'm an only child. The only other people in the house is my mom and dad downstairs in their bedroom. And, but this voice says there's someone in the guest bed. Automatically, I look at the guest bed, and sure enough, there's a person under the blankets as if asleep in the guest bed. Like Goldilocks. Yeah. <laughs> Instantly, I'm terrified because... You know, I used to watch the scary movies, and every scary movie scene is coming back to me of somebody, some monster coming into their bedroom and all this stuff, and I'm terrified. So you actually see a form, or a body? Very clear, because it was, it was just starting to be enough daylight, I could see, you know, shadows in the room, not okay. really clear, but shadows are very clear there was somebody in the bed. I'm so scared, I crawled out over the end of my bed trying to not to get close to this person in the guest bed, and I inched my way across the floor to the light switch. And I had my hand on the light switch, and that's the doorway out and down the stairs, too. I'm thinking, do I turn on the light? And then this person's going to wake up. What's going to happen? I was too afraid to turn on the light. I don't know why I didn't go downstairs and tell my parents, but I didn't. I got back in my bed. Hmm. And but I'm wide awake, and there's no there's not a dream. Okay, I'm I get back in my bed. I'm under the blankets, and I'm waiting and watching. And it was a very short time, and the person in the guest bed sat up on the side of the bed. Okay, you know this is a a body. You're watching this. Mm-hmm. And I'm you know I'm ready to to flee. At the moment he sat up on the side of the bed, all my fear was gone because I saw it was Jesus Christ. <laughs> the way I knew it was him is I saw him as he would have looked on the cross. Now, you know, Jesus suffered terribly when he was crucified. First, they beat him with a whip uh, laced with bone that ripped his flesh and secondly they put a crown of thorns on his head that pierced his skull and caused blood to flow down his face and finally they put nails in his hands I saw all of this so you saw his face I saw his face I Did he saw have any garment on his garment torn shredded his body bloody and in that moment I knew it was Jesus Christ and I knew that he had suffered this for me. I suddenly realized if I was the only person in the world, this is how much God loves me. This is how much God loves you. This is how much he loves every person in the world, no matter what kind of sin we've done, no matter what kind of darkness we've lived under or gone through or suffered under, he has suffered more and he has paid the penalty for all of our sin, all of our darkness. And it was this deluge revelation. I just, the love of God just flowed over me. Now, did he say anything? And, and yes, he then, he, then as I was just beholding this and realizing I am, I am seeing Jesus. I mean, I don't know how God does this stuff, 
but I'm seeing, you know, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's not dead. He's not in the grave. He's alive. He's living. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But I'm being allowed to see what he experienced and what he did for me. All of a sudden, I knew one thing. God is real. I am no longer an atheist. Just like that. Boom. Bam. Revelation. Wham. I am no longer an atheist. God is real. Number two, Jesus is real. And Jesus is everything the Bible says he is. He is the son of God. He is the creator that created the world along you with the instantly father. instantly know this. Instantly. I just knew it. So does he say anything to you? He did. Uh, and the, 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 Finally, the third thing that was revealed is just deluge. The Bible is the word of God. It is not just written by you man. Knew that immediately. I knew it as I'm just in the overwhelming presence of the living God. Um, the Bible is the word of God. And so then I was so overwhelmed. I, I, was, I fell on my face weeping and repenting of my sin because I knew it was for my sin he had suffered all that. He leaned over. He put his hand on my shoulder in a very fatherly way. And he said very gently, my child, don't cry. And then I remember putting you my... You heard this? Yes. With this is ears. audible. This is real. It was not a vision. This was not a dream. It was real. I don't know what you call it, but it was real. I saw Jesus. I touched him because as he put his hand on my shoulder, I put my hand on his hand. And, and I felt the nail hole in his hand. Really? That is how vivid this was. It was real. And I sat up. I was caught. I was so overwhelmed. And if you read the book of Daniel, when Daniel was in the presence and he just fell on his face and he was overwhelmed, that was where I was overwhelmed. I was weak. I was sick in my life. But it was because I was in the presence of God. And it was like, whoa, I'm almost going to die in the awesomeness of the living God, the presence. But he strengthened me. He caused me to sit up and I was caused to look into those battered eyes. So you, you sat up and now you look straight into his look eyes. Straight into his eyes, into his face covered with blood because of the beating he'd taken for my sin out of love for me. And I look and I thought in my natural mind, I'm thinking, surely because I've been such a rotten person, I've had all these de- these these devilish thoughts and devilish actions, I things I used to do. Surely he's a little bit angry with me. I mean, really, you know, this is God, isn't he? He should surely be angry with me and judge me for some of this. But as I looked into his eyes, there was no anger. Mm. There was no judgment. Only love and forgiveness. Really? Love and forgiveness. And that love and forgiveness just washed over me and washed so you over feel me. feel it like coming on you. Waves right? of glory. Wow. And so just, did he say anything else? He did. What else? He said, my, and actually I had, I had well, that's, that's a long story. If you get into that one. <laughs> Years earlier, I had had a, you might call it an out-of-body experience 
where I was taken into kind of a Narnia, mm-hmm. um, a Narnia world. Every night I'd lay down on my bed, I'd go into an, another world, and every few nights I'd get a new episode of this um, re- un- un- unraveling dream? this, this uh, serial movie kind of. Was it a dream? was not a dream. I was wide awake. Um, but years earlier, this had occurred. I didn't know what to do with it. But in that experience, there was a man who was a was the savior of the universe, and and he died, and then he came back, and I didn't understand it. And but all I had always said, um, I I would I I want that experience to be real. Wow. I called it the dream. Even though it wasn't a dream, it was. It was. A, I was awake during that. Mm. I'd always. It was my precious thing that I kept very secret because I was afraid if anybody knew about it, they'd think I'm crazy. Right. So I never told anybody about it. Um, but I had always wished that the dream, were that lovely man that had given himself to save humanity and to save the universe, wow. could be real. And then I completely forgot that thing. I had completely forgotten it How for many years. I was nine happened. years old when that okay. happened. Now you're 15. 15, yeah. Okay, so six years later, and he says? Your dream will be true. He says that. Your, that's the one other thing that I remember, that I was allowed to remember of, of our conversation. Your dream will be true. And very soon after that, I realized he's the man in the dream. Wow. Jesus Christ is the one who gave himself to save us and to save the world. So how long did this experience go on, in your opinion? It might have been a half an hour. but Really? Uh, because he spoke more to me that I was not allowed to remember. Uh, these are the only things I was allowed to cognitively remember. But then, again, I was just so overwhelmed with his love and his presence. And I just fell on my face again, weeping, repenting. Um, and I cried myself to sleep. I woke up daylight. Must have been a couple, maybe an hour or two later. Broad daylight. I wake up. Whoa. My room appeared normal. There was no sign of like anyone having been in the bed. But I was so changed that I was terrified to look in the mirror because I literally felt like I was I was like sparkling from the inside. I really, I'm, I'm like, what has happened to me? Have I got an Alice in Wonderland? Have I been transformed into something now? You know. But it was beautiful. It was glorious. It was like I was all sparkly, like I had a bunch of uh, soda pop, you know, uh, fizzies. fizzies on the inside and sparkly. I just felt so clean and. And, and and so the, then when I finally got in front of the mirror and realized I am still me, uh, you know, it was but it was just such a transformation wow. of the fact. See, what happened to me is I was saved. I've been washed spiritually. All that Jesus had taken his sin, all that my sin upon him. And I was now a, so this was a, king, super a citizen of his natural kingdom. Natural conversion. Totally. Totally. Okay. So you're 15, you go back to school, what starts happening? <laughs> so I was this radical Christian. I mean, on fire, live wire, um, I'd go into the, the um, I didn't, I'd, I'd got to tell people about Jesus, you know. But I couldn't tell that testimony for six months. I would try to tell my story, but it was so vivid and so overwhelming, I would just weep. I could not even begin to get it out. I would weep for six months. It was until I could begin to tell my own testimony, because wow. it was so so uh, vivid. 
Um, but I would go and make uh, little tracts. I didn't know what a tract was. <clears throat> but I would hand write John 3.16, Jesus loves you. John 3.16, Jesus loves you. And then I'd cut them all apart. And I'd go and stick them in the locker vents during the break. And everybody's in class. And I'd sneak out and I'd go stick these things in locker vents to share the gospel. And I just wanted to tell people about God's love. Um, and so many other ways that uh, that I was a little evangelist in the, from the very beginning. And uh, But God was using that time and training me and uh, preparing me for what was ahead. Right. So, so... Now you're evangelist. Your father is confused. Yeah, my poor dad. Um, you know, he thought I had been brainwashed by the church. Uh, of course, my mom got saved at the same time. So poor dad. He thought that we were really got caught up in a cult. Um, but the fact is, we just were on fire for Jesus. Right. We had had a real experience. Jesus wasn't a religion for us anymore. He was real. And he was part of us, and he we we wanted to know more about the Bible, and we wanted. To, but my dad would stomp around the house and say, "You put that blankety blank Bible away, or I'm gonna shoot your horses." He would actually really? threaten me that way. Yeah. How many horses did you have? I had about two. So you had two horses, and now you're becoming very, very good at that. What's that called? A dressage. Dressage. Dressage equestrian. And mm -hmm. uh, he wants to build you a. Equestrian center. Right. So my dad thought that if he would build me a grand horse training facility for my future career, I would, hopefully, I would forget about God and I would go ahead and continue pursuing what, you kind of hope things would go back to the way they were. Um, although I was quite a brat before and I don't think he wanted it back the way it was, but he wanted me he wanted to rescue me from this cult I was a part of and to get me to be a normal person and just pursue my career. Okay, so you, uh, you, you graduate, you go into college, you're doing this. When did you go to Youth with a Mission? How so yeah, so I went to did my horse training um, uh, focus in college. It was a, an agriculture degree with a horse with an equine emphasis, and as I graduated from that, now I had become this uh, five state champion in Minneapolis, Chicago region, and, and you're things were going really well. Yeah, I'm I'm on I very I was involved with the campus ministry and did a lot of street outreach, various kinds of amazing stories there that God was just moving. Um, so I come through college and I knew I'm going to do campus ministry and also um, horse training, but I need some Bible training. So I said, Dad, Dad has now finished this grand 200 by 70 foot free span riding arena for my college graduation gift. And I said, wow, thanks, Dad. Um, and by the way, we didn't have a lot of money. We He would build an airplane and get paid for that airplane and go out and buy steel and lumber. And he'd climb up on his 20, he had a little 8N Ford tractor he used to put the trusses, 24 feet high trusses to make this grant all by his own self, 65 years old. And so my dad was just an amazing man. And I'm so thankful to God for him. Um, but he, he was poor. He'd given up his own dream of this man-powered flapping wing aircraft. He gave it up. He threw that airplane into the swamp, literally, to pour his last strength into building me this horse training facility. It was finished in five years as I graduated. I said, Dad, I feel like I need some Bible training because I've got it. I'm going to do campus ministry too. So let me go to Bible school. So I went to YWAM, Youth with a Mission, Denver, Colorado. And as I was there, 
I'm thinking I'm just preparing for my college ministry along with horse training. But they started... you've already graduated from... I've graduated from college. Mm Mm-hmm. Just graduated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and, and but they're teaching us about the unreached nations, the places in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. And I thought that's cool. Somebody else can go there. I already know what I'm doing. What are you going to do? Horse training and campus ministry. Okay. And so, well, one night we're watching a movie. We're just relaxing in the basement. You know, we got the pool table and we got our popcorn. We got our pizza. We're getting good, comfortable. Gonna watch a movie. All of a sudden, the power of God just came all over me. Christian I, movie? Yeah, yeah, it was a Christian movie. It was some kind of mission movie. Um, but the, just the credits, it was hadn't even really started yet. And all of a sudden, the power of God, boom, just comes. All oh, I'm shaking. I'm trying. I'd never had this happen before. I'm shaking. I'm like, whoa. But I had this booming in my mind. God wants to say something to you. I jumped up. I ran out of the room. I got my Bible. I got found a corner. Uh, the hallway sat down god what do you want to say and the lord spoke it wasn't an audible voice but it was so clear it mine as it was a thus saith the lord it was that clear the lord said i'm sending you to the unreached nations and i'm like whoa uh where'd this come from you know this bad really bad pizza i just ate (laughs) i hadn't thought about this before where'd this come from and it, is this really you, God? Is this the pizza I just ate? I want to know, is this really you, God? So I said, God, is this really you? And it's immediately he said, turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, start at verse 24. Just like that? Yeah, just you Ezekiel. You don't even know if there's 36 chapters I didn't know, in Ezekiel. I had never read Ezekiel. I didn't even know, oh yeah, that's Old Testament. You know? <laughs> and I opens it up. And that passage just says, I'm calling my people out of a land of idolatry i'm taking away the stony heart and giving them a heart of flesh god said i'm sending you to an idolatrous nation to bring my people out i'm like okay idolatrous nation and all these nations they taught us about are going through my head and i said god i'll go anywhere but india you said this i said that (laughs) because all i could remember him teaching us about india was there's all these you know languages and 330 million gods and goddesses and devils and demons and 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 you can't even do anything in india it's just this confusion and that was what was in my mind and so i said anywhere but india and the very next thing the lord spoke is so clear start in india start in india start in india yes do you know, now see, if you're listening out there and you're saying, uh-huh, that's what I'm afraid of. If I, if I just, just give myself completely to God, God's going to ask me to do something that I don't want to do and he's going to make my life miserable. Now I'm afraid of that. I don't want to open myself up completely to God. If you're saying that, you don't have to be afraid of what God's going to call you to do. Because when God calls you to do something, he puts that love in your heart. He puts that passion in your heart for the very thing he's calling you to do. And you couldn't even be more happier. That's right. From that moment, I had a passion for India. I didn't want to train horses anymore. I didn't want to do camp. Just like that. It was just, wow, yes, this this is my destiny. Okay, so then what happens? Within three days, God confirmed that so clearly. Three days. Within three days, okay. uh, I call my dad. Hold it. When are the dreams? That's next. 
After you call this your dad? after, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he confirms it within three days? Within three days. It was so clearly every day, just another way God confirmed. I called my dad. I said, Dad, sell the horse facility. I'm not coming back to train horses. I'm going to India. That was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because it, you know, my, my dad's heart was broken. He'd poured out his whole life for me, for this, for my equestrian and he hung up the phone on me from the first time in my life and he had to wrestle with this issue but now listen you can never out give god do you know that that was the turning point along with the patient um demonstration of the love of christ that my mom gave my dad living with him as his wife as a christian being persecuted by him she was constantly ministering him love to him loving him along with that this was the turning point when my dad realized jesus must be real if my daughter will give up everything for him and my dad we could never imagine my dad's heart was so hard he was so bitter toward the church but he asked for a bible he started reading the Bible, and then he started attending church with my mom. He gave his life to Jesus Christ before he passed away a few years later. Wow. That would not have happened if I had not obeyed God when it was hard. So this was the catalyst mm -hmm. that caused really a, a, a crisis of his whole worldview because he knew you. Yes. Mm -hmm. He knew if, if Liana Cinquenta would do this, this has to be real. That's right. Yeah. Wow. And that's, I know my dad's in heaven today. Wow. Because of that. So you tell your father, and that's the catalyst for his salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay, then what happens? And, uh, well, then I started to say, well, God, where in India? Now, God has a very specific plan for each of our lives and it's and for your life as well mm -hmm. and so he wants to guide you he wants to guide you into the highest road for your life i could have just gone to india and served the lord i could have stayed back and trained horses and served the lord but for me to be the, the most fruitful i could and to be the most fulfilled and blessed of god that i could I had to receive specific direction and I, I prayed God where in India he gave me three dreams in a row the same dream three dreams three in a three nights in a row I got the same dream and in this dream I was above the nation of India only the whole okay. subcontinent what you're gonna tell me is you have this same dream three times yes it's virtually the same three exact same dream three nights in a row wow. okay it's consecutive and so I was like up in a, a, a kind of a spaceship above India I could look down I could see the China the Himalaya mountains Delhi Calcutta and the Ganges River going across North India and I'm drawn in closer and closer as I'm drawn into this map the Himalaya mountains started to change into castles and then I saw seated in the castles and in the Ganges River area, demonic principalities. And these were not little guys with carrying a pitchfork with a, with it like the, you know, Halloween stuff. These guys were major powerful warlords. And they were, were they were they were kind of like they were like kings sitting on chariots or standing on chariots, and they were like driving chariots, and they had reins in their hands and whips, and the reins were made of chains, 
and all these chains went down throughout the whole subcontinent. India, Nepal, Pakistan, Bangladesh, the whole area was under the control of these demonic powers. And those chains went down to not horses, but people really? who were enslaved in idol worship, enslaved in poverty, disease, all of the sex trafficking, abuse, discrimination, all of the things we see that is keeping those that, that those nations in bondage. And I was, my heart was broken as I saw these people being tortured and being enslaved under the power of darkness. And I knew, then I knew the stronghold is in the north. If we're going to liberate the nation, if we're going to liberate these precious people in bondage, we have to go to the north where the source of the bondage is. So this dream, now these demonic forces, you told me once, what did they look like? They, uh, if you've seen the movie Lord of the Rings, um, the orcs mm -hmm. in that movie look almost identical to the demons I saw controlling those nations. And this was pre-Lord of the Rings. This is before that ever became, this is 1993. So Lord of the Rings wasn't even on the map yet. <laughs> right. I mean, the books were there. I had never read the books, Tolkien. I had never read those. Um, but years later, when I watched the movie, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's what I saw in the dream. That's them. Orcs. Yes. Okay, okay so you, you, you have this now. How do you know it's North India? That's what I saw very clearly. These guys were stationed, not in the whole nation. They weren't in the whole subcontinent. They weren't down in South India. They were all in the that region between the Ganges River and the Himalaya Mountains. That's where they were. So three nights in a row, you have the dream. You pray and you say, okay, God, I'll go to North India. I ended up getting on a plane with a one-way ticket. Before you go there, you obviously researched. Yeah. And oh, what yeah. did you find out about North Discovered India? Discovered that North India is one of the least evangelized places in the world. It's also one of the most needy socially. We've got 30 million destitute, high-risk, orphan, semi-orphan children who are being enslaved, abused, trafficked. India is called the poisonous hub of sex trafficking in the world. It's got the highest rate uh, of illiteracy for any nation except certain countries in Africa. It's got the worst illiteracy in all of Asia, not to mention the North, of course, is way, it's like 0.01% Christian in those days when I Point went. 0 0.01% Christian. So that's one Christian per... <laughs> Yeah, million. What millions? <laughs> wow! It was you could hardly find a Christian. Patrick Johnson called it what? Yes, the uh, author of Operation World, which is one of the 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 most well-renowned missions statistics work. Uh, he called this area. He said this is the touchstone. North India is the touchstone of our success or failure in completing the task of world evangelization. Wow, and they also called it the Graveyard of Missions. The Graveyard of Missions, because so many folks had gone and tried, and missionaries had died trying to bring the gospel, but they couldn't break through so the heart of the people. So you are a single gal, under five feet, under 100 pounds, you've got the call of God, and now you buy a ticket. And so God said, don't join a missionary team. And nothing wrong with missionary teams. However, God wanted to show me a new paradigm. He wanted to do something that wasn't being done. He wanted to show me a strategy. 
He wants to show you strategy too. And so I, I, he said, don't join a missionary team. You're, I'm going to put you with families. You're going to live with an Indian family. And so that's what happened. I got, long story short, I got a one-way ticket to India. People told me, you're crazy. You can't go without a missionary team. You're going to die over there. And so I got a one-way ticket, and I wrote my will for my parents to find, knowing, thinking I would die on this mission. Where did you put your will? I hid it in a place where I knew Mom would look in her records every end of the month she's doing the accounts, and so I put it in the filing there where she would find it. Did but they I didn't, find it? didn't want my dad to find it. He would have a heart attack. <laughs> did they find it? She, yeah, my mom found it, and uh, she never thought, said anything. She just committed it to prayer. She never showed your dad? No. <laughs> What did he say when you bought a one? My my dad was crying. It was the first time, and by this time, my dad's in a wheelchair. He's being taken over <laughs> by cancer. Um, but uh, it was the first time I saw my dad cry when I got on the plane. Would you ever see him again? I did, um, but he was in hospice by then, and it was, he was pretty far gone in the cancer. Wow, so you go to India. Now, do you almost die? So when I got there and I started living with the native people and the Lord showed me, don't buy yourself what your, you know, our American money can buy a lot in India. And I could have lived very high on the hog for a few hundred dollars a month. But the Lord said, whatever they eat, you eat. Where they sleep, you So I was sleeping on a little, you know, half inch thick mat on a concrete floor with the cockroaches and the ants. I was eating what they ate, which all they could afford was a little bit of rice and lentils and eggplant. That's what we lived on for day after day, month after month. This is pretty much what we had to eat. And I, I, I got giardia from the drinking the water. The What's water that? was brown. So it's, it's a bug. Um, from the water coming out of the tap, we didn't have filtered water. And the water, you drink water out of the well. You dip out of the well. And there's floaties in that. It's brown. Just full of bad stuff. <laughs> but I got to where I could, my system could tolerate the water, but I was constantly some kind of ailment. It was either digestive or it was sinus but I was constantly some kind of sick. It never kept me down. It never stopped me from doing the ministry. But I was under this for years and just years. living, yeah, living in the same suffering that the native people have to go through because they don't have money to buy anything better. How many years did better. you do that? Um, probably about five years. And you learned the language? I learned the language uh, just by living with the people. Did you They look would say, Indian? they gave me the name Jyoti. <laughs> What name? They, the, the native people gave me the name Jyoti, which means light, because they said, you're the first person from the outside that has ever come and lived with us as one of us, loved us to that degree to be with us and to undergo everything we undergo. Like Jesus. Yeah. You're the light of the world. Mm -hmm. He came and lived amongst us. Amen. Yeah. Okay, so you're there. I now. went down to 70 pounds. 70 pounds. Mm-hmm. And with and got got to where I was, you know, I could tell my health was really going. And finally, I got some medical treatment and found out I had my thyroid gland had died from having been under that stress and the sickness all those years. My thyroid had died, and so I got on the uh, thyroid medication and started to uh, to level out and get my health back. But that was God uses those seasons in our lives when yeah. He wants us to align wow. with suffering. Did you, now, did, were people coming to Jesus at that time? Yeah, and so this is as the as during this time, God showed me the strategy, 
And the strategy was I was not to be the missionary out there sharing Jesus. I was to be a servant of those precious native people, the few who had come to know Jesus. I was to help them to minister to their own people. And so through that, that's when we founded Tell Asia Ministries. Um, and very soon after that is when we joined Harvest International Ministries as our network. Which is uh, Dr. Chayan yeah. Suan, mm-hmm. based out of Pasadena, which we're part of. That's right. And so, for, so, so that's, and that's basically when I met you. Mm-hmm. Now, at this time, you developed a strategy called uh, Tell Asia 2020. Telesia Ministries is our organization, yeah. and we're based in Denver, Colorado. Um, it's a not 501c3 uh, U.S. nonprofit. Um, and then uh, that was in 1996 um, that we founded the organization. Um, by, ni- by, t- by the year 2005 uh, is about when we met uh, HIM, and I did my master's degree in Fuller's Theological Seminary in Pasadena. Um, and that's when we started to connect um, as a network. It was in the year 2008 that we launched. We said, wait, we are seeing, you know, hundreds and thousands of people are coming to Christ. Children are being educated. We're developing schools and anti-trafficking initiatives. But how are we going to reach in a bigger way? How are we going to reach 300 million people? We have the, the number of people in this region of northern India is, imagine, entire population of the United States all living in one U.S. state. Wow. That's what we were working with. And they don't, they've never heard the name of Jesus. I remember going to out one village and the native pastor I was with, he asked the village chief, uh, do you know Jesus? The village chief, he kind of sh- scratched his head and said, um, i never heard of him. Um, he doesn't live in this village. Maybe, go down the road. Maybe, you, maybe you'll find him in that village. Really? They didn't even know who Jesus was. Wow. So that's how unreached northern India is, but it's the key to one-fifth of the world population or more. So you developed a strategy of empowering na- nationals, native, first, uh, you know, the, the, the indigenous people, and you got a vision for 2020, and your vision was to see what? The, the 2020 network, we launched... <coughs> we launched the 2020 network in the year 2008 with a vision of bringing the love of Christ to every village in the entire Gangetic Plain and beyond by the year 2020. And you have seen now, with all the leaders you're working with, how many people have been coming first generation to actually experience the love of God personally, God touching them. Every year we see around 100,000 people that are being rescued out of the suffering of idol worship, the fear and the bondage of those chains of idol worship and fear of death. They're being rescued out of there. They're being healed. They're being delivered of demonic oppression. 100,000 a year. 100,000 a year. Year after year after year. Yep. And they're following Jesus Christ. They're baptized. Mm -hmm. They're identifying. They're forming collectives. Uh, micro communities how many of these micro communities do you see existing now we have around 23,000 of these small groups where not only are they coming to uh, find healing and deliverance but they're also we're also educating their children there's so many of the children that are growing up illiterate and they're high risk of trafficking so many of them are going into some kind of slavery whether it's the brick kilns or the factories or um, or the sex slavery 
we're rescuing them out by educating them and giving them a brighter future. So, just uh, as we're coming to a close here, you had a, the Lord spoke to you and said something about children. This is when you got involved mm-hmm. in anti-trafficking. Tell yes. me what he said. Yes. The Lord said to me, and we've been so focused on the gospel evangelistic work up till then. <coughs> but one day the Lord said to me, the most Christ-like act a person can do in this life is to give Jesus and a bright future to a child who has no hope. What does that mean? Say that it one more time. The, the, the most Christ-like act or the greatest act a person can do in this life is to give Jesus and a bright future to a child who has no hope. Now we're talking about children who are, they're living on barely one meal a day. They're malnourished, they're, they're unkept, they're left on their own as their parents go and slave for 12 hours in the village or they're taken with their parents and they have to carry bricks on their head to earn a living to help their parents just to survive. These are the kind of children and they're, they're growing up in misery. They're growing up in a horrible situation. Worse than slaves. Worse than slavery. Um, and then they're destined to be slaves their whole life. <clears throat> They're destined to be slaves their whole life because they don't have an education. And so what we're coming in with anti-trafficking drama teams that are teaching the parents how to keep their kids safe, how to keep from them from ever being trafficked. <coughs> we're teaching the children the value of education, teaching the parents. And so they're sending their kids to school. Literally, we have inoculated over 600 villages. So they will, this whole village now knows the value of education, the value of health and hygiene, and how to keep their kids out of trafficking. One by one, we're actually transforming whole villages. So when we began to work together, you said there were how many Christian children's homes slash orphans slash schools there? There was, for a population of about 200 million people, there was about three Christian children's homes, and one of those being ours. One of them being ours. Mm -hmm. And you started the school programs, and how many anti-trafficking from a base of, you know, our values of God and and the human dignity and life, except how many existed of those? There was almost nothing that we're aware of for this massive population. And then in partnership with Be A Hero, helping us to fund the drama teams and the awareness projects, uh, this all has come up in the last couple of years uh, through our partnership. And we started that incredible uh, live-in school for uh, children that had nothing. Mm -hmm. And how many kids go to that? Um, Our children's home right now has about 30 children. And these are ones that have been rescued out of that very high-risk situation. Uh, We have around 150 education centers where, again, these children are being pulled out of, literally rescued out of brick kilns, rescued out of slavery, given an education, given a future. Um, In addition, now there's, we have several more schools that have started, um, which are educating children at a much higher level for them to really go on into middle class uh, future. Wow. And you're presently working with how many, would you call it, indigenous native leaders? Yeah, we got around, um, well, we're up to around 20,000 native leaders that are in. um, Now, we don't believe in in just our organization. We believe in the body of Christ. It's about unity and working together in the kingdom. And so 
TelAsia and, and also, of course, HIM is an amazing network of many different groups. But we believe in um, helping everybody to work together for the purposes of righteousness in wow. the world. And so as we close, you said that the Lord called you to the nations. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that you're on the verge of going to the next phase, the next level? Uh, the nations. Absolutely. Yes. Tell us that in closing. Well, I've been teaching internationally uh, for several years. Again, I appreciate and honor HIM, <clears throat> uh, Harvest International Ministries, for giving me a platform, an international platform, um, as a trainer for Wagner Leadership Institute and other network churches. Um, but I see right now, I know that God has, he's given me a message of mobilizing and empowering the body of Christ, empowering people in general into their destiny. God has an awesome destiny for every one of us. That destiny begins with changing kingdoms. You gotta be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and come into life and hope and peace through faith in Jesus Christ. And beyond that, God has a purpose for your life. He wants to use you to advance the purposes, the righteousness, and the joy of Christ in the world. That's awesome, Leanna. So today, all these years later, from the time when Jesus appeared in your room, sat on your bed, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people's lives have been touched. And uh, they can go to your website, tellasia.org. Tellasia.org, And yeah. uh, you have written materials. You're developing like almost movies and books and so many things. Yeah. We want to say thank you for your dedication. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your life, Liana. And uh, you know what? This has been great. We're looking forward to working with you much more. Thank you, Wesley. And I also want to ask folks that are listening, go out there on Amazon. You will find a book called Treasures in Dark Places. Treasures in Dark Places. That's the whole story. Get it? God will use that to set you on fire to change the world and to find your destiny. Thank you.